0: Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. Summer of Wisdom, and we're exploring what's known as the wisdom literature of the Bible. Three primary books make up the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Job, and uh, Proverbs, and then we're also going to tag on at the end some uh, readings out of Psalms, which is known as wisdom poetry. So last month we were in the book of Proverbs, and so the whole church read through the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters for 31 days of May. And now we're starting to transition into our next book of the wisdom literature, the book of Ecclesiastes. So I've invited the church to read through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is only 13 chapters, to read through it a few times this month, in the month of June, and to try to read through it in some some different versions or editions of the Bible that you're not as used to, if you're particularly used to reading one version. How many of you guys have had an opportunity to read through the book of Ecclesiastes at least once so far in this month? I assume most of you guys have read it. Uh, at some point, uh, many of you guys, but how many of you guys have read it recently, like in the last week, okay? handful of us, that's great. <clears throat> so, what we're doing is uh, we're going to kind of spend some time introducing this book today, and over the next few weeks, we'll start to explore it some more. So, today is kind of a way of introducing the book of Ecclesiastes, and also how it fits into the broader scope of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Um, so, As you read Ecclesiastes, some of you guys have read it recently, some of you guys have read it uh, at some time in the past, and as you read it this month, there might be some times where you start to feel a little down, a little discouraged, a little confused, like, why did God put this thing in the Bible anyways, you know, like, I thought I was already feeling down and blue about my life, thanks a lot, Ecclesiastes, now I feel even worse, This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is like sometimes when we read it. It is uh, a bit jarring and sometimes unorthodox and not exactly what we're expecting when we read the Bible, especially when we go to the Bible looking for it to make us feel better. And so Ecclesiastes doesn't exactly do that. And I wanted to kind of set the stage for us on how to read Ecclesiastes, right? How do we interpret this? How do we process this? How do we make sense of this in the larger narrative of the Bible? The book of Proverbs that we went through last month actually sets the stage, okay? It outlines kind of the main contours of what's known as traditional Old Testament wisdom. It helps us to understand what wisdom is. And it's the essential background, to reading Ecclesiastes, the next book in the wisdom literature that we're going to explore. And if you remember from Proverbs, the traditional sort of Old Testament wisdom is like cause and effect, right? If you do good things, good things are going to happen to you. If you do bad things, and if you're a fool, well, you know what bad things are going to happen to you. And those things are generally true. But any of us that have lived on the planet longer than little baby Hazel know that that's not always the case. There are many, many exceptions to this, right? Bad things happen to good people all the time. Tragedy strikes all the time. Stuff that we can't make sense of. We struggle to understand why. Ecclesiastes is one of these wisdom literature books that starts to dive into the exceptions that Proverbs didn't really discuss. So let's take a look at this video to begin with to help give us some background to the book of Ecclesiastes.
1: The book of Ecclesiastes, it's part of the Bible's wisdom literature and it opens with this line, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now in Hebrew, the word Kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn. So it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David, and so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say, and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end, and it's hevel, hevel, everything is utterly hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word, hevel, as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke, and the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. But secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, But when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world. But just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice. But all the time, bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable. Or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Heaven. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us, and it will be here long after. I mean, no one's even going to remember you or anything you did 100 years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. And the ocean will still be breaking on the beach, and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher also can't stop talking about death all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer, and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, no matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die, and it's an escape. So with these two ideas in hand, the teacher goes on to consider all the activities and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance, like wealth or career or social status or pleasure. So you think working hard is gonna make life worth it? Think about the stress and the toll that that takes on you, all the anxiety and the sleepless nights. And by the time you actually earn some wealth, you're gonna be too old to enjoy it anyway, and then by the time that you have to pass it on to someone, they may not even be someone who cares about anything that you did. Or maybe you think pleasure is gonna make life worth it for you. Go for it. You know, live for your vacations, live for the weekend party, Monday always comes. (laughs) Heffle, heffle. Everything is utterly Hevel. So what does the teacher advocate then? That we become pure hedonists or relativists? Well, no, that would be Hevel too. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs, that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're Hevel too. Because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions. And so even wisdom is Hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this Hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting Hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologue, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship or family, a good meal or a sunny day. You can't control these things, you're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be. Because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end, which might hurt when it pokes you, but he says the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far. And you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment. The hope that one day God will clear away all of the heaven and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope, that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes.
0: So, if you're looking for a really light-hearted, encouraging read, and you go to the Bible, don't turn to Ecclesiastes, okay? <laughs> Um, If you're feeling really like one of those I hate Monday type of days, and you're feeling really somber and blue, and you're wanting to dive further into that hole, read Ecclesiastes. And I remember as a young Christian, when I first started following Jesus in my early 20s, I remember the first time I read Ecclesiastes, it was actually one of the earliest books that I read. I don't remember why or the circumstances or how that happened, but I remember loving this book. Does that tell you a little bit about like where I was at in my time, in my heart and in my mind? Okay, so I remember feeling so connected, like, yeah, Solomon, that's what I'm talking about, man. It's all meaningless, pointless, this life. And I remember coming out of this life to follow Jesus, coming out of this life of living for pleasure and pursuing. Life as I wanted it, you know, chasing sex and money and drugs and alcohol and education and achievement and chasing what the world told me would give me meaning. And I remember finding it utterly meaningless. And then I remember becoming a Christian and reading Ecclesiastes and feeling like, wow, like it took me all of this time to figure this out. And this guy, thousands of years found this out already like I'm like where have you been all my life you know but I remember feeling such a strong connection with the author here in Ecclesiastes with the teacher that all of life apart from God really was meaningless it was like chasing wind I found all of my pursuits to be in vain I felt like it was chasing something that could never be grabbed, ultimately bringing me to a place of discouragement, of despair, having thoughts of suicide, ideations of suicide, even attempts of this. And then I read in Ecclesiastes 7.1, the teacher says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. That was the same place of despair and discouragement that I had found life-chasing wind to be. And so the author's basic goal, right? The author is the person who's putting this writing together, the person who's actually writing this, and the teacher who's speaking most of the book, he's a character in the book, right? The author's goal in writing down Ecclesiastes and writing down the words of the teacher is to deconstruct all the ways that we try to find meaning and value and purpose in this life apart from God. And I think this is key to remember as we read some of the sayings of the teacher that can just downright be disturbing. You've got to remember what the author's intent is, what his hope is, and to read the entire book as a whole through this lens. And as we read Ecclesiastes, for those of you that read through it before or read through it recently, you see this tension. You're going to feel it as you read it, right? If you read it carefully, and I would encourage you, if you're able... To read the book of Ecclesiastes in one sitting, for most of us, that's very possible. Why? Because that's how it's designed to be taken in. It's a whole work, right? We're not supposed to just read a couple verses and then move on a few days later and read, you know, like we miss the forest for the trees when we do that. So I want to encourage you to read through the whole book in one sitting. And as you do, you're going to see this tension arise. Where the teacher says things that life is meaningless, it's Hevel, hevel, meaningless, meaningless is most of the translations that you'll read. If you read older translations, it's going to use a word like vanity. Vanity, vanity, all things are vanity. And he starts talking about this chasing after the wind, how there's no real purpose. And then all of a sudden he'll say things like, you know what? We should just eat, drink, and find satisfaction in our work because this is a a gift from God. It was like, well, which one is it, man? All right, come on. You're like oh, going schizo on me over here. Figure it out for me, you know. Like, oh, life is meaningless. Well, you know what? Actually, it's a gift from God. Just enjoy yourself, right? Eat, drink it for tomorrow we die. Okay, um, this book is not helping me out. Okay, so there's this tension here, right? We feel this tension when we read this book. This this duplicitous take. This kind of this kind of like view of life that seems to have poles and there's a spectrum. And it causes us to ask, when we see this tension, when we see this spectrum, it causes us to ask this question. When our faith and what we believe teaches us that life has to have some meaning, some purpose, some value, right? Intrinsic, beyond just what we achieve or do or pleasure that we feel. It's got to have some intrinsic value. Our faith teaches us this. But then we observe and we experience life and it points in the other direction. How do we know, how do we know if life is meaningful when circumstances show us that really nothing makes sense? There seems to be no point. It seems so meaningless. And if you read the Bible carefully, this goes back, this question, this tension that we see in Ecclesiastes goes all the way back to the first couple pages of the story. That God creates, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing. And then humans decide, I want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I want to make myself, we want to make ourselves, not God, the center of life and knowledge. And it brings utter ruin. This is the tension that we feel in Ecclesiastes. It's the same tension as throughout the entire story of the Bible, that we as people have said, no, thank you, God. I want to make my own purpose and meaning in life. I don't want your assigned meaning to my life. I don't want meaning of my life to be the fact that I bear your image. I want it to be that I make my own destiny. I make my own purpose. I make my own value. I am the captain of my ship. And then what does it bring? Despair and discouragement and death and destruction. Luckily, the story doesn't end there. The narrative, the story of the Bible is that God relentlessly pursues us to redeem us and bring us back from our own error. But here we get a glimpse in Ecclesiastes of this This book and this teacher where he's describing these tensions that he feels. There are two basic ways that the author, not the teacher, but the author tries to bring resolution to the teacher's tension, right? Look over in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There's two basic resolutions here because if there's no resolution, what happens? You're just done. You're just like, well, great. There's no hope. We just give up. Just die. The day of death is better than the day of birth, okay? There's got to be some resolution to that tension, otherwise we're just left in this dark hole of of despair and terribleness. And the author knows that, and he tries to put this together for us. There's two primary passages where we see one of the ways that resolution is brought to this tension. First, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it becomes apparent that the teacher, right, he's the one that's saying all these dark things and, and then seems to be sort of like all over the map with, no, well, maybe it's a gift from God just to eat and drink and enjoy your life and enjoy your friends and, well, ah, it's better to die, you know, and everything's meaningless and there's this tension there and one of the things that's revealed is that the teacher has this autonomy of knowledge. The method in which the teacher knows things, knows truth, is autonomous based on his experience, his reason, his observation alone, apart from God. And he realizes that the way of knowing is actually flawed and is folly itself in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Look over in chapter seven. These are passages that reveal to us a way to resolve this tension. Chapter 7, verse 23. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. All right, teacher, you got some woman issues? Okay, had a bad relationship there? The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, the teacher says, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. And while I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only I have found. God created man upright, mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. So what's one of the resolutions to the tension that we're seeing here in these two passages? First, it's being revealed that the way that this teacher the teacher, right, in the story, the way that this person is understanding truth, understanding knowledge, understanding wisdom, understanding reality is based on his own experience, based on his own observation, based on his own reason. And these passages start to indicate to us, you know what, that's dumb. Why? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. What does that mean? Your reason, your experience, your method of knowing truth is not holistic. It's not complete. And so to draw conclusions based on only that is going to lead you down some sorrowful paths. Like, I've only found one upright man among a thousand, but women, boo! Well, that's just based on your experience, dude. Couldn't many other people say the opposite? I've only found one upright woman in a thousand, but men, boo! Right? Based on what? Our experience. Of course, we've experienced both of those things as reality, both of them are true. But the passages here reveal that a resolution to this tension is that there's a greater truth than your and I's observations, your and I's experience, you and I's reason and method of knowing truth is very limited. True wisdom is being humble to that. To know that everything we experience, everything we understand and reason to know has a very limited perspective. Second, another resolution to this tension with the teacher comes through this exhortation to remember God. Look in chapter 12. Here we start to come in for a landing at the end of the book, and we're given conclusions of, okay, all of this erratic, you know, like, ah, life is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, I ah, just, you know, find some enjoyment in some way, and then you're just going to die anyways. What do we make of all of that? Well, some conclusions are offered. Eph- um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, And the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And then he goes on to describe what life is like for the advanced elderly. You're not going to find pleasure in the taste of food anymore. You're not going to find pleasure in sleep anymore because you can't sleep. When we get near death, it's hard to take enjoyment because we're decaying. And he says, because of this, you know what's good for you to do? Remember your creator, while you still can. Wow. What an exhortation, right? You talk about meaningless vanity, a chasing after the wind. What gives meaning to this life as we observe it and experience it? We've all experienced that, right? All of us have experienced life just like the teacher. That it can feel like utter vanity and meaningless chasing of wind this life. So a resolution to this, the author offers us, is remember your creator. What does that mean, to remember our creator? It doesn't just mean, oh, remember God, as in like, hallelujah God, or go to church, or you know, say some prayer, or remembering our creator means that our entire perspective on life itself, reality, and truth, is informed by the fact that God created everything. And this is what's been missing from the teacher's perspective all along through the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the hallmarks of the teacher's sayings is the word I. It's very self-promoting. I saw this. I tried this. I did that. I received this. I have observed that. Therefore, I conclude this. What's been missing? That the teacher was created by God. Just like everything else. And this perspective that God is the creator of all things gives us a place in which to begin to understand true wisdom. The book of Proverbs that we read last month, do you remember what the book of Proverbs teaches us? Is true wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom, it says? Fear God. To fear God. And here in Ecclesiastes, we see a very similar conclusion. Remember your creator. This is a similar shape of what wisdom looks like. We can't have true wisdom if we don't have in perspective God, a fear of God, the fact that God created everything. If we're not looking through that lens, the only other lens we have which to look is life is utterly meaningless. And even though we look through this lens of God, the creator, and that we have a fear and a reverence for him, and we talked at length last month about what it means to fear God, it's not just this, you know, timidity or, you know, fear in that sense, but a reverence. Even when we look through that lens upon life, it doesn't solve all of life's complexities. It doesn't solve all of the enigmas that we encounter in life, but it does put us in a position to affirm the fact that life does have meaning and all the more so for us now who live under the new covenant of Jesus and are loved by God. We have a great way to understand meaning in our lives through that lens. Now I want to take a look at another video that's going to help us to see how Ecclesiastes fits into this broader scope of the wisdom literature, of which we need to read together, right? Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes is designed to be read together to form a holistic picture of wisdom. Let's take a look
2: exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've
1: looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher.
2: She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life.
1: But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says,
2: You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book.
1: But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word.
0: So why does the author want us to hear from the critic?
1: Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down. And he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time. Or as the critic says,
2: Generations come and generations go. But the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago and all the people yet to come. They too will be forgotten by those who come after them.
1: And so, on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blank. Stars are born, and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars, and those planets, they change over time and eventually turn up. And amidst this cosmic
2: backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation, that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals. Death all people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not, they all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing.
1: And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause-and-effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The Critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words.
2: The race doesn't always go to the swift, or the battle to the strong. Nor does food always come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So, his
1: point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So, if I want to master life, then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now, throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times, he says that everything in life is heaven. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It
2: takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape.
1: And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now, our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate pebble as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting, and uncontrollable. So, what are we supposed to do with all of it? Well, surprisingly, the critic, first of all, acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says, it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend or the sun on your face or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope, he wants to make you humble. into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the hevel and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he will bring us the final much needed perspective on our journey into wisdom.
0: So we'll dive into Job next month, uh, but for now we're gonna remain in Ecclesiastes. If you turn over to chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Again, this is kind of an introduction, sort of an overview. We're going to scan, scan through the, the book of Ecclesiastes here to help us to know how to read it. How do we make sense of it? How do we interpret it? And how does it fit into the larger story? In verse 13 of chapter 12, now all has been heard. This is now the author, no longer the teacher speaking, but the author writing for himself. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And so for the book of Ecclesiastes, the fact, the truth, the reality that God is going to bring everything under judgment gives us a perspective in which to make sense of life, in which to find meaning, even in the enigma, even in the difficulty, even in the uncertainty, we can trust and process the enigma through the understanding and the faith that God is going to judge. So the central theme of this book of Ecclesiastes is the question of whether or not life is meaningful. Proverbs affirms that life is full of meaning, but Ecclesiastes looks at life through the eyes of this teacher who finds life to be an enigma, no matter what area of life he explores. And the teacher's examination of life is comprehensive, captured in this recurring phrase that you see over and over, under the sun, under the sun, meaning everything. I've tried everything. He explores all of life, things like pleasure, building great projects, wealth, music, work, time, justice, oppression. The problem of death, companionship, government, leadership, etc. But no matter which area of life he explores, he concludes that all is meaningless. And at the same time, there are these joyous passages, these joy passages throughout the book, as was mentioned earlier, about six of them, that affirm that there's this rich texture of ordinary life, like marriage, work, eating and drinking, enjoying the sunshine. And that this is juxtaposed to this meaninglessness that he finds in all of these areas of life. And as Christians today, right, the teacher was speaking thousands of years ago. And now as Christians under the new covenant, understanding the revelation of God through Jesus, that the story has a conclusion now that the teacher didn't have then. We are not alien to these same sorts of existential and intellectual crises that the teacher found himself in we're not exempt from that there are going to be things in our life that we struggle to make sense of that we struggle to understand god through we're not exempt from that and if you haven't experienced that yet just hang on a little while but we've got to struggle through these crises we've got to struggle through these difficulties Not making ourselves the center of truth as the teacher in Ecclesiastes did. Otherwise, truth evades us and we find ourselves in despair. Because when you and I are the center of reality, it's a bad sight. So next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to do something a little different. And if you're new around here, we always like doing something different. So if you don't like what we're doing now, just hang around a little while. We'll probably do something different and maybe you'll like that. Not that that's really our goal. But next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to, instead of coming and listening to someone preach, right, we're going to go back to our earlier Christian brother and sister's roots and just read the Bible publicly together. We're going to read through the book of Ecclesiastes next Sunday together publicly. James is going to be guiding the church through that. And so if you haven't read the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to encourage you to do so. If you haven't done it recently, do so. Please read it before you come on Sunday. And if all else fails, you'll be able to read it Sunday together with the church. Let's pray together as we close out this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for uh, your wisdom, God. And there are many complexities and Uh, enigmas and difficulties in life God that we struggle with and they can bring us to some dark places of faith and God I pray that we can learn from your word that that really the goal is that we should humble ourselves knowing that we just don't know everything our perspective is so limited we're just a blip on this cosmic scale And Father, that to me just makes it all the more radical and amazing that you would love us, that you would care for us so individually, so meaningfully, that you would allow our lives to be patterned with this context and this texture of meaning and purpose and love. That's just amazing, God, because we all, have eaten from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have all rebelled against you. We have all wanted to make the center of the universe ourselves. And God, we just realize that does not work very well. Help us, Father, to see life through the lens that you desire us to see it through, that you are the creator. You understand and fathom all things, and we don't. And we want to take a humble posture through the good times and through the bad to know that you are going to bring everything under judgment and that all things are going to make sense one day. Help us to have faith in that journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.